This is the second Sunday after Christmas, and uh, preachers don't often get to preach on the second Sunday because it usually we fast forward immediately to Epiphany after the first Sunday after Christmas. But uh, this year, I think last year we did too, we have the second Sunday. So uh, it's sort of a privilege to preach about this because the theme is set by the collect, you know, the prayer that the presider prays at the beginning of the liturgy, O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life. So what does that mean, and how do the biblical readings we heard this morning support that? And maybe they have some connection with the four affirmations that I always preach about during Christmastide. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about Jeremiah, about Ephesians, and about the gospel. And um, part of the motive is what I've told you many times before. My teacher, O.C. Edwards, at Neshota House, used to say to us, it is not important what the Bible says. It is important what the Bible means. And so when we, it probably should be, should be quoted as it's not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. That's how I understand what he said when he said it. So it's important for us to know about the source of these readings. Uh, Episcopalians believe that we need to be students of the Bible and uh, not in the sort of literal word-for-word sense. I've been fascinated recently with a church in Vancouver, British Columbia, where my two sons live. It's one of the dissident churches in in, uh, that diocese and also the largest church in that diocese, St. John's Shaughnessy, and uh, they are a full-tilt boogie, no-holds-barred evangelical Anglican church, and uh, they record their sermons, and they do something which uh, is done in many Protestant churches, but not in the church that uh, we are in, except there and other a few selected places, known as expository preaching which means the lectionary gets tossed and they just decide they're going to talk about whatever they're going to talk about for a while. So we're on Romans for the next five months or we're on Mark for the next five months. So today we're going to use the lectionary. We're going to talk about Jeremiah and Ephesians and the reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke. Um, Jeremiah who usually paints one of the bluest pictures of all of the prophets, has really given us a somewhat upbeat passage today about the future hope. And remember, as I've mentioned, we've been reading from Jeremiah in the last cycle, in cycle C, and what these readings are about is the movement to exile and the return, the restoration from exile. And so for the early Christians, certainly the first followers of Jesus, the theme of restoration and return is very important to them. Because in the thought world of the time of Jesus, certainly within the Judaism of his day, the whole issue among the people who talked and thought about this in the midst of their messianic expectation was, had the return happened in its completion? You know, the return from Babylon was 500 years, a long time before the Christ event. 
but it was a significant thing in terms of saying this has not come to completion yet in terms of God's plan for humanity, and they believe that in Jesus it has, and that we see in him the unique focus of the divine presence, as it said on Christmas in the epistle to the Hebrews, the very imprint of God's being. So Jeremiah today actually is writing a hundred years after the return from Babylon, but it sounds just like they're back. And he's speaking about these themes of restoration. Why they're important for Christmas is that, you know, alienated and lost humanity and people who feel somehow disconnected uh, can be reconnected with God. And the affirmations that are in the Christmas message about the nature of our humanity, the ability to achieve the highest of our human potential, the possibility of joy, and the necessity for each Christian person to be a peacemaker are the ways and the means that we appropriate God's restorative work. The same word that means to save in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek New Testament also means to heal. And so implicitly in this quotation, Jeremiah is saying something about God's healing power made manifest not only in individual lives, but in the corporate understanding of the people of God and their role and vocation in the world to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. So Jeremiah sets us up for this idea of return and that it's never too late. One of the nice things about using a lectionary is these readings come up over and over again, year after year, and that gives you a chance, gives all of us a chance to reflect and to reconnect with those things, with those ideas. Because as our lives move, if we're on pilgrimage, we are always confronting the issues of, of separation, alienation, lostness, return, reconnection, healing, wholeness. So those things can happen. And in some way, implicitly in Jeremiah, the promise is there. In Ephesians, the writer in Ephesians is speaking today about how we see God's unitive purposes at work in the Christ event, in the incarnation, God becoming a human being. And Paul wishes to speak about the unity that is coming to exist between Jews and Gentiles. It is, I think, a pious hope, obviously. But in some ways, he believed that that could happen. And certainly from his own perspective and his own, um, his own life, he believes that that is a possibility. So it's an affirmation and a proclamation of the potentiality of movement towards unity and that you and I are called in some way to be instruments of that unity in Ephesians, that we do that. Um, I always go over this, you know, 39.90. There are a lot of uh, biblical scholars who do not believe that Ephesians is one of the undoubted letters of Paul. Um, may, that may or may not be so. There's some compelling reasons to say why uh, it isn't. But then again, you may be saying in the back of your mind, who cares? And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's also the question that you can you can uh, ask with uh, some legitimacy in this particular case. Um, but 
we can interchange the author with Paul and say that, you know what this may represent, if it isn't Pauline, is the movement of the church's reflection on the Christ event itself and how it's now come to an understanding of God's unitive uh, purposes within the pastoral reality on the ground when this epistle was being written. So you have some idea that uh, even in the, in, the, in the biblical text, there's this sense of, of movement and evolution and coming to a fuller realization of God's plan for the cosmos. Some biblical scholars believe, at least there were some that I had to read when I was in seminary, that Matthew's gospel uh, has one of its major purposes and themes is to say that Jesus embodies in his person and in his words and in his works the new Torah. So by virtue of his preaching and teaching, what he says about the law of love being the operative principle in all human interaction, in a sense supplanting the way in which we understand the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, that Matthew has now written his gospel and in a way that gives it five parts to conform to the five books of the old, first five books of the Old Testament. And so there'll be many things that will try to connect the reader's uh, uh, understanding to the idea that Jesus is in some way is a new Moses and the restorative return from exile, the reconnection from being lost and alienated now happens within his ministry and in his teaching. So the Sermon on the Mount becomes kind of a replacement for some of the things in, in the Torah. So today we have a story where uh, Joseph hears in a dream that he needs to take his family away from uh, the location they're in where the king has got a mind to find them and perhaps kill Jesus. And so he listens to the dream and says, I'm going to go to Egypt. So he takes the family to Egypt. And they're in Egypt until they're told it's safe to come back. Well, you know, what might this be a parallel for? Who got over to Egypt for a while? The people of Israel. What is the great defining liberating act in that tradition, in that narrative? It's the movement from Egypt out of slavery into the promised land. And so it, in this action, the Holy Family replicates what happened. And Moses now bringing them back. So a reader um, in the time of Matthew's Gospel, certainly a Jewish Christian, which Matthew was, would have understood this in those terms. And so the return from exile, the return from bondage and so forth now into some more liberating circumstance is part of the message of Jesus and part of the message of what he is to bring as he moves into his teaching ministry as he grows into adulthood. And so Matthew wishes in this story to make that clear. It doesn't appear anywhere else. So this is unique. 
Maybe it's some of that special M. <laughs> right? So he's bringing Joseph and Mary and Jesus back. And he decides not to go to where he had wanted to go. He went to Nazareth and uh, lived there. Actually, you know, Nazareth is very close to a big Greek town, big Greek in the ancient Near East called Sepphoris. So when everybody used to think, oh, it might be true that Jesus knew how to speak a little Greek, it's now just assumed in biblical scholarship that he spoke Greek. Because he and his dad were probably doing jobs over in Sepphoris in their, in their work. I just meant this doesn't really relate to anything, but I think I mentioned it last Sunday. And, you know, in the uh, mid-19th century in England, there were a group of people called the Pre-Raphaelites, painters, you know, all these Christina Rossetti and all this. And uh, I can't remember whether it was Holman Hunt or some. One of the painters painted Jesus as an adolescent boy in his father's workshop doing carpentry work with his dad, making something. It caused an absolute firestorm of controversy when it was, when it was painted and displayed. And some of the great art critics of, uh, in London, in the newspapers, panned this picture and said it was impious to paint such a thing or to portray the savior of the world as an adolescent boy doing carpentry with his father. We've come a pretty long way, I think, in some ways. I'm not, you know. But uh, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it is an affirmation of the humanity of Jesus. And it was a very, it, it's a wonderful picture. Have, you see, have any of you seen it? It's a, great, it's a great picture. And I always think of that at this time of the year when people begin to think about the humanity of Christ and what it really means. Some of us make all kinds of adjustments because of our tendency towards magical thinking or how we want it to be and so forth. But he was a regular human being just like us and had all of the uh, traits and characteristics, you know. And it wasn't his divinity that was here separate and his humanity here separate. It was all one thing, you know. And that's what became so compelling to his followers because they understood him to be the template that they could lay over their own spiritual life and development. And so while they weren't him, they could be like him. So what Jesus is by nature, they become through adoption and grace at their baptism. They can do this. He wasn't just some, you know, uh, semi-transparent wraith that you could put your hand through. He was a real human being. And he had all the limitations that a human being has in its culture and age. So I've said this recently. If you, went, if you came up to him in Nazareth and asked him what a space capsule was, he would tell you, I haven't a clue. I've never even heard of a space capsule. Right? Some people would think, well, he's God. He ought to be able to know. He would know what a space capsule was. No, I don't think he did. You know? So sometimes when you think about these things, it's what somebody like N.T. Wright, who's no liberal in many ways, would say, it depends on what you mean when you say God. 
And you need to know what the people who lived then meant when they used that term. Because it isn't some, you know, sovereign, uh, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal only being. It had a very imminent expression in the world. So in one sense, this story connects us to all this. All these three readings connect us to the four affirmations. The goodness of our humanity, God's yes to humanity, God's restoration of the dignity of human nature. There's a theological theme in there, isn't there? From the fall in the garden to the restoration through Christ as the new Adam. And we believe now that we have been we have now the possibility to recover our supernatural endowment. This may be doing a great disservice to these two views, but uh, the Protestant view of what happened in the Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve blew it! (laughs) Blew it! Over! No way back! Absolutely not. All of our powers of reasoning and ability and all that stuff is defective by definition. The Catholic view would say at the Garden of Eden, at the fall, you and I lost our supernatural endowment. But we were able to still know the good. That's why if you keep endlessly on this idea that, you know, it's not works, it's faith, that you never can think about faith apart from hope and charity, which are the three, three infused virtues that we receive at our baptism. So when you think about the way in which we look at this sort of irretrievable uh, loss that can only be done by some zhunk, you know, then you sort of leave off the idea that we have a dignity that has been given to us made in the image and likeness of God and God's continuous restorative purposes are always available to us and in the Christ event we see once again recapitulated perhaps in a definitive and full way what God continued to do through history and continues to do. So when we think about that, the goodness of our humanity, it's important, I think, to keep that in mind, that each one of us can achieve the highest of our human potential. That it's possible to be joyful, meaning that the uncertainties and the ambiguities and conundrums of your life can come into surer and clearer focus as you live a life of intention and desire to know God's purposes for you. And finally, that moves the individual soul, both personally and corporately, to say, you know what, we need to be people of peace, of the shalom of God, and all of the things that word means in its fullness. Regeneration, absence of anxiety, fullness, healing. It's a word that is very profound. It doesn't mean just no war, nobody hitting anybody. It means a whole lot of other things, too. So as you move through now to the period of Epiphany, the, 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 the readings and the season of Christmas, which is just about over when we get to Epiphany, is about the presence of Christ to the church 
Dr. John McQuarrie, I heard him give a lecture one years ago, but it, this is about the presence of Christ to the church, and we celebrate that gift, that Christmas present. And then when we get to Epiphany, and what Ephesians is anticipating is we celebrate now the manifestation of Christ to the world. We make it manifest. So each Christian person needs to decide, how do I be an instrument of the manifestation of God? using the goodness of my humanity and the knowledge that I can achieve the highest of my human potential and be joyful in the process and be an instrument of God's peace. So think about as you move towards Epiphany how you might do that. Amen. Amen. Amen.